When I was uh, planning my sermon, I didn't picture myself delivering it like this. Uh, I had all sorts of actions planned for stage and all sorts of things. But <laughs> And um, apologies again just to echo Benji's, um, uh, what he said about the, the power situation and the gas. Uh, but we're just thankful that um, God's word can still continue. And unfortunately, we started late. So it doesn't help that I prepared a two-hour sermon. Um, so I'm going to you please to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're carrying on with our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. And I hope I speak on most of your behalf in saying that it has truly been a blessing um, to go through this. And I, I think that there are fewer verses than fewer chapters uh, than the Sermon on the Mount that really shows us the heart of Christ. And really um, gets us to get intimate with our Master. So we continue now. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be reading from verses 38 to 42. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42. It reads as follows. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the depths of it, Lord. We can spend eternity trying to understand your work, your word, Father, will never plumb the depths of it. It is so rich, Father. It has everything we need for life and godliness. And you pray that even this evening, Father, uh, that you have something, a little nugget for us. Show us the beauty of Christ uh, and draw us closer to him, we pray. In his name we ask. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with the phrase, sweet revenge. There is a sense in which in our sinful flesh, few things are sweeter than revenge on one who has inflicted some kind of pain or harm, or has caused significant loss both to us and to our loved ones. Now I'd wager to say that we've all had those experiences. We've had a sudden rush of blood to the head when we've wanted to put someone in their place for something that they've said or done to us, or at least have thought about it. We just love to see justice served, especially if the offender shows no remorse or guilt for his crime. A similar phrase which talks to this is payback or payback time, where an offender receives his dues for what he has done. Interestingly, this concept of payback is not unbiblical, but is actually captured in scripture. The principle of restitution is, in fact, one that the Jews, that Jesus is speaking to here, would have been very familiar with, as it was one of the civil laws that God gave to Moses to command the Israelites. It was a right of the Jews to get restitution for the wrongdoings directed at them. This principle of rights is not one that is also too foreign for us here this evening. I read a newspaper article last night 
which read, poor service delivery violates human rights. We're so obsessed about our rights. And anything or anyone who would want to impede on our rights will be met with the harshest rebukes. Looking at our text here this evening, and in trying to understand what Jesus is calling us to, and his original hearers, I structured our sermon under three headings this evening. Firstly, what the law of Moses instructed. Secondly, what is Jesus commanding us to do? And thirdly, how Jesus exemplified this command. Let's go then, firstly, what Moses instructed. Look with me on verse 38. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Notice that Jesus opens by saying, you have heard. You, my original hearers, have heard that it was said. The Lord is not speaking to those, as I said earlier, who are ignorant of the biblical God-ordained principle of restitution. They knew God's commandment in Moses' writing and would have been practicing this even in Jesus' days. To help us understand the context of this command, let's please go and turn to the text that our master is quoting here. Go to Leviticus, please, 24, 17 through 22. Leviticus chapter 24, 17 to 22. Leviticus chapter 24, um, 17 to 22. It reads as follows. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good. Life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done it, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. And whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native. For I am the Lord your God. Having just gone through the book of Leviticus as a church a couple of months ago, a theme that we saw in this book is a reminder of God's holiness and man's sinfulness. And how Israel is to pursue godliness. To this effect, God gave the Israelites laws and, and rituals which further evidence his righteousness and holiness and our own sinfulness. One such law, as we've just read, deals with crimes and the restitution of those crimes. Knowing our sinful condition. God's purpose with this law is to reign our impulse for disproportionate restitution or revenge or another way of putting it excess um, restitution for the crimes committed against us by bringing this principle of proportionate restitution another way of saying this is that the gravity of the punishment should meet the gravity of the crime that was committed Another way of saying this is to say that the offender must pay back a price of equal value to the loss that he has caused. Now we've heard of numerous South African communities where the community becomes the self-appointed judge or police 
uh, when punishing offenders and they have no regard to the value of the crime that was caused. Listen to this article that I just read, that I read earlier from News 24, and I quote, One man has died and another admitted to hospital with serious injuries following brutal mob violence in Zwede recently. The situation unfolded when the sister of the deceased realized that her Sasa card and book were missing from her house in some, some Fula Street in Zwede. When her brother, Lowando Kana, who's 31, and her cousin denied any knowledge of the whereabouts of her, of her cards, she informed the community. Approximately 30 people arrived at the house and took the duo to a nearby park where they were assaulted with shambox, <coughs> water pipes, and sticks. According to police spokesperson, uh, Colonial Priscilla Naidu, after being beaten, the two were brought back the following morning, and Kana was found dead in the house. His 42-year-old cousin sustained severe injuries and was taken to hospital for treatment. Here is a classical example of unbiblical, wicked restitution. A man was thrust into eternity into a meeting with his maker for stealing a sasa card. What is of equal value to a lost or stolen sasa card? It's not a trick question. It's another sasa card of equal monetary value. <laughs> Certainly not a human life. In the text we just read, what is of equal value to an animal's life. It's an animal's life. Similarly, what's of equal value to a human life? Certainly not money. No amount of jail time. 25 years in prison is not enough restitution for loss of life. It is another man's life. Using this then, as you see in Scripture, the principle that God is trying to teach is the correct price for the value that's been that's that's been stolen, the correct price to pay for a stole for uh, a gouged out eye or a lost tooth is an eye and a tooth respectively. This law is therefore given to prevent what happened in communities like Zuida. This principle therefore is to protect both the victim and the event offender in certain instances where his life is at stake. Most importantly, and this is very important, this law was given to the state, not to individuals, but to the state where leaders and judges would determine the appropriate value. Just as an aside, do you see the love of God in this law? Do you see the tender care of God for his people in this law? He knows our sinful nature. He knows that we are, have a bent towards excessive revenge. You see the infinite wisdom of God in this. There's no one more loving, there's no one more wise, there's no one more kinder than God. Now that we understand what the law of Moses was meant for and for its purpose, now let's try to understand um, the context that Jesus is talking about here. This is our second heading this evening. What our Lord Jesus is instructing us this evening. Let's go back to our text, please. Look at verse 39. And notice that Jesus begins his command by saying, But I say to you. 
Our master here speaks as the one who has authority to give the law. Jesus, as the God-man, has authority to rule. No one can ever say, you have heard that it was said, but I say. Now who comes to mind when you think of such pinnacle of authority? Your boss, maybe, who gives instructions at, at work and people do them? How about the Reserve Bank governor? He decides people's livelihoods in a single speech on interest rates. How about the greats of old? Winston Churchill and Napoleon and Nelson Mandela. Comparing their authority and the authority of Jesus Christ is like comparing a toy Mercedes to a real Mercedes. Why bother? In John 7, 46, you don't have to go there. The chief priests and scribes, they sent officers to speak to Jesus. Or rather, they sent officers to arrest Jesus because of the miracles that he was doing. And these officers, they heard what Jesus said and they came back empty-handed, didn't arrest him. And they gave feedback to the Pharisees and officers who, and scribes who sent them. And this is what they said about Jesus in verse 46. They said in John 7, 46, no one spoke like this man. Jesus stands alone, separate, like a diamond surrounded by a field of black coal in power and authority and dominion. As we continue in our text, Jesus commands his hearers by saying, Do not resist the one who is evil. The evil person that the Lord Jesus talks about here uh, and instructs us not to resist, I take to be the one who inflicts injury or harm or personal loss on us. The Lord then goes on to give examples of what it looks like in verses 40 to 42 by being either physical harm or coercion or parting with goods. It's worth a pause at this stage to state the obvious. There are evil people out there. There are evil people who would want to harm us and injure us and steal from us. We're not in heaven where all people will be of one accord in mind. And this calls for wisdom and discernment and for us to be watchful. Turn on your alarms at night, people. Pray for protection at night. There are evil people that we call to resist. Now back to our text. Jesus continues to say, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone will sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Knowing the original principle of restitution, what Jesus says here would have been astounding and shocking to his original hearers. They would have thought to themselves, if there's anyone you would want to resist, surely it's the evil person who causes you harm. Especially... The scripture permits us to do that, as you saw in Leviticus 24. Before we try to discern what Jesus is saying, let us first try to understand what Jesus is not saying. What is he not saying when he says, turn the other cheek and give to the one who borrows? By reading the context of this entire text, I don't think Jesus intends for us to interpret this literally in all circumstances. But it's rather symbolic of the general disposition that we are to have as Christians. 
Let's take the first instruction. Turn the other cheek when one slaps you. Is Jesus literally saying that we should turn the other cheek? I don't think so. And why do I say this? Go with me to John 18. Go with me to John chapter 18, verse 23. John 18, 22. Read as follows. When he had said these things, this is now Jesus, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus by his hand, saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Now here is an account. After Jesus was handed over to the officials by Judas, and is now being questioned, that one of the officers struck him. Notice what Jesus does here. We're not told that he turns the other cheek. Now, if Jesus commands us in Matthew 5.39 uh, to turn the other cheek, and that's to be taken literally, and then surely Jesus would have done this. Wouldn't you agree? If he commands us to take this literally, and if he didn't do it, then he would have sinned. But we know that it's an impossibility. So this leads us to the safe conclusion that Jesus is not intended for us to take this literally. We can breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> Applying this more practically, the wife to an abusive husband who slaps on the cheek should not, should not turn the other cheek. To bring it to the church and let it be dealt with. Alternatively, look at the command. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Are we to do this at all times? What if your cloak was your last item of clothing? Is Jesus commanding us to give away all of our possessions? I don't think so. The same can be said about not refusing the one who borrows from you. It will be unloving to lend someone who borrows your car who doesn't have a driver's license. Or to lend a gun to someone who breaks into your house. Break into your house. Oh, by the way, Philip, I forgot my gun. Can I borrow your gun? You're going to give him your gun? So I hope you agree with me that these commands cannot be taken literally. Now that we've determined what Jesus is not saying, let's discern what he is saying. In this context, I understand Jesus in his supreme wisdom and for the sake of his kingdom and glory, to be calling us his hearers here this evening, to sacrificially lay aside our legitimate rights aside in certain circumstances where wisdom permits. Friends, he's calling us his hearers, instead of seeking restitution, to have a, a general disposition of mercy to the evil who cause us harm. And in so doing, glorify the Father and Christ. I'd like to think that as those who have been shown mercy, there should be an impulse in Christianity towards mercifulness. That should be a knee-jerk reaction. Showing mercy where you could legitimately and biblically obtain restitution leaves your offender shocked and astounded and makes him question, what is the reason of the hope that is in you? A story is told of uh, Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary to the Chinese. 
and he was hailing for a boat to come and get him. He was on the other side of the river. He was hailing for the boat for a boat to come and get him. And the local Chinese comes and shrugs him off and throws him into the mud and calls for the and, and gets into his boat. Now the the uh, control of the boat says to him, "I'm sorry, sir. That man called the boat first, and it is his." And obviously, the other man was astounded and amazed at his at his blunder. Hudson Taylor said nothing, but instead he invited this man onto his boat and showed him what it is in him that made him not to retaliate when he shrugged them off. You see, therein lies an opportunity for the gospel. When there's an opportunity for you to retaliate and use your rights and get your, your rights to show mercy and create a bridge for the gospel. Does this mean that we should be happy when actions are taken? Um, actions are taken and there's no justice where there's harm let me tell you something in God's economy there's no such thing as no justice Isaiah 61 verse 8 reads as follows for I the Lord love justice I hate robbery and wrong I will faithfully recompense I will make an everlasting covenant with them again he says in Romans 12 9 beloved Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. In God's economy, therefore, there will always be restitution. It just doesn't need to come from us. So what does laying our rights look like here this evening for us tonight? It looks like allowing someone to deliberately cut you in at the four-way stop during load-shedding traffic. Alternatively, it could look like letting someone rob you of your credits, of the credit that's due to you for a project that was successfully implemented at school or at work. It could look like not retaliating at false accusation. It could look like, and I, and I saw this, this is a real life example, not suing a medical practitioner for their negligence which caused you to be hospitalized for months. How about responding kindly and patiently to a rude service provider on the other side of the till? I'm the customer. Can I, can I call the manager? You'll be within your rights to do that. Jesus is calling us in certain instances to lay that aside. To build that bridge to that person on the other side of the till. What else could it look like? It could look like not harboring bitterness at someone who caused serious harm to you in the past and has not sought forgiveness. It could look like forgiving someone who desperately comes and asks for your forgiveness. So here's a question for you tonight. Are you laying aside your rights? Or do you deliberately avoid defending yourself and choose the way of peace? I take this principle also to apply in the context of the church and our own covenant community. Let's not be quick to cry foul, but have a spirit of mercy towards one another. Let's not be like those soccer players. You know those soccer players? Just touch a guy and he spins 10 times. Let's not be quick to cry foul. Let me just say this, that there is nothing natural. There is nothing natural about what Jesus is asking us to do here. 
It requires us to die to ourselves. It requires us to desperately rely on Christ to make us like this. George Muller, who is a, an exemplary man of prayer and preacher, I commend you to watch his um, uh, YouTube biography on YouTube. George Muller says this about death to self. This is George Muller. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying, he's saying, there was a day when I died. This is George Muller. He says, there was a day when I died. Utterly died. I died to George Muller. His opinions, preferences, tastes and wills, died to the world. His approval or censure, died to the approval or blame, even of my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. G has to die to G to be this way, to be the one who lays aside his rights. You have to die to yourself to be this way. To live in obedience to what the Lord calls us today, we need to die to self. The Lord says in John chapter 15, He says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now let's consider now, and this is our closing point, how Jesus exemplified this. The Lord Jesus never calls us to do something that he himself was not willing to do. As one who most legitimately could have defended himself, being God and one with all power at the tip of his fingers, um, Jesus best shows how to lay aside our rights. Turn to first, turn to first Peter 2. First Peter 2, 23 to 24. First Peter chapter 2. 23 to 24. It reads as follows. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you must follow in his, in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Listen to this, verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Our Lord demonstrates exemplary patience and resisting to retaliate. He could have sent a whole legion of angels to deal with those who reviled him. When they spat at him, he didn't spit back at them. When they called our master names, he didn't retaliate. When they ripped off his clothes on him, leaving him barely bare naked, he didn't utter a word. Nor did he ask for his clothes back. Instead of pronouncing judgment on them, he cries, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Verse 25 in 1 Peter 2 tells us that he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. Ultimately, in allowing his life to be taken on the cross, he bore our sins on the tree, as we read in verse 24. So you might be here this evening, and you might be the evil one who slaps people on cheeks and robs and steals and cheats. 
Or maybe you don't do this, but you commit other sins in your, and in your heart of hearts you know that you are far from Christ. Repent today and believe in Jesus that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. Let me say this. What we've just read about laying our rights aside is impossible for the unbeliever. It is impossible. You cannot do that. This is meant for the Christian who has been changed, made a new person, and is now free to obey. If you don't believe in Jesus this evening, don't go out there and try to be this way. You would have missed my entire sermon. Rather, the call is to repent, see the beauty of Christ, have your sins forgiven, and then you are free to be this way. And if you're in Christ this evening, and you know that you are quick to defend your rights, and you know that you are quick to retaliate, you're quick to call the manager, you're quick to complain, let this encourage you and convict you that Jesus was the example. And trust him to help you be an imitator of him today. And in so doing, point others to the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so amazed. And we just treasure you and sever you and adore you. When you've shown us your heart just like you have right now. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you that you, you call us to this way of wise living. But you don't only just call us, but you go and live it out. Give us the example. Lord Jesus, we repent for our sins in this. We repent for those who are quick to clutch to our rights, our legitimate rights. We repent for vengeful thoughts. We repent even for executing revenge on others. Oh Lord Jesus, help us to be like you. Help us to have an impulse towards showing mercy and so be like you. We pray for those who are with us here this evening. But this is not true for them. We pray that this will be the night of their salvation. That they would see you and treasure you. They will see you on the cross and see your beauty and cling to you. Save many, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing our closing hymn.